Hello, welcome to the All Things Sedation podcast. My name is Michael Dare and I'm your host. This is episode number five for February 8th, 2020. I had Dental Ed, a company that teaches procedural sedation and analgesia in the dental profession. And you can visit us at dentaled.com, so dentaled as one word, .com. And you can have a look there at our website and see what we're all about. We do a variety of courses in both minimal and moderate sedation, ACLS, PALS, dental office medical emergencies, ECG interpretation. We also do consulting services to help set up sedation practices to meet best practice guidelines. We deliver sedation services and we also sell supplies and equipment needed to do a full office setup for um, higher levels of sedation. We're here for you. So um, that's a little about the company. We're located in Canada, in British Columbia, out on the West Coast in the Vancouver region. But today, I'm uh, delivering this podcast from the beautiful province of Saskatchewan. Um, I'm out on a little mini vacation visiting my wife's family. Um, And, uh, yep, it's snowy and it's cold and it's a lot different than it is right now in BC on the coast. It's minus 15, light snow, and I'm sitting in our cabin that sits on a small frozen lake in uh, eastern Saskatchewan. Now, the way I got here was a little bit interesting. Um, I own an electric car, a Tesla, and Tesla finally uh, finished uh, a series of what are called supercharger stations, where you can charge your Tesla quite quickly, that now stretch from coast to coast in Canada. So up until now, we never even had the option of driving out to our place in Saskatchewan, uh, but uh, we now do. So out I came in the Tesla through the blowing snow and the blizzards and the icy roads. And uh, electric cars are actually awesome in the winter. Uh, A lot of people don't understand that. Um, Teslas have all-wheel drive that is micro-computer controlled and also a very heavy car due to its lithium-ion battery pack. And uh, it handles incredibly well in the winter on ice and snow. In fact, it's very hard to get this, this car to actually skid or slip. And um, on top of that, uh, there's no engine to warm up. Uh, Electricity creates instant heat, uh, instant defrost, and instant ability to drive. Um, So it's actually been quite interesting driving in winter conditions. I've done it before, but uh, it's the best car I've ever owned for driving in winter conditions, actually. Um, So um, we'll be heading back out to BC tomorrow, but I really wanted to get this podcast out the door. And the topic for today is uh, a heavy subject, that's for sure. It's dealing with one of the most serious emergencies that you could ever have at a dental practice, and that is a patient who is experiencing a cardiac arrest. So um, we have two sort of types of emergencies when we teach uh, emergency care and management in dental practices. We have what I call the coincidental emergency, which is most of them. That is, it's an emergency that you really are not directly involved in causing in any way. Your paths crossed with the patient on the very day that that emergency was going to develop for the patient, no matter where they're located. So that's uh, a very large category of the types of emergencies you're responsible for trying to manage in a dental practice, especially in a sedation practice where the bar height is usually a little bit higher. The other type of emergency is what I call, um, well, there are emergencies that 
in some way, the emergency happening is somewhat related to you and your dental care. Say, as an example, um, a patient's having an allergic reaction to a substance that they came into contact with at your dental practice. That's the other type of emergency. So today, hopefully, if you ever were to have a patient having a cardiac arrest at your practice, it wouldn't be something that you've caused. It would be in that category of the coincidental emergency. Now, there's lots of um, information and studies out there looking at uh, the ability of people to be able to respond to emergencies in both in-hospital and out-of-hospital settings. And it's well established that in out-of-hospital settings, including in dental offices, um, the ability to detect an emergency early and the ability to respond appropriately is is challenging um, that quite often the response to medical emergencies that are quite serious in nature in in dental offices is, is suboptimal so um, i spend a lot of time teaching how to manage uh, these types of emergencies how to optimize your ability to care for a patient and how to optimize patient's outcome uh, how can we uh, how can we help them um, um, uh, do well and manage and survive something as bad as a cardiac arrest now, the biggest disadvantage in many, many uh, healthcare settings is that the people working there uh, do not see serious types of emergencies on a regular basis so that they ever really get comfortable with handling them. I mean, there's nothing better than working in a very high volume tertiary hospital in a big ICU or a big eMERGE department to get comfortable with dealing with a variety of um, of, of serious medical emergencies. Just by the fact that you have seen them so many times, it becomes ingrained in you as far as what needs to be done and how to work as a team managing a very ill patient. Most healthcare providers don't work in that type of setting. They actually work in small hospitals, in medical clinics, in out-of-hospital surgical centers, or in somewhere like a dental office doing sedation. So you are at a huge disadvantage because you work in what I call a low volume setting, a setting where it's very, very unlikely you're going to see a serious emergency um, and very unlikely that you and your team would ever be comfortable dealing with it. So your biggest, in, uh, your biggest enemy quite often is the inability to think clearly due to extremely high levels of anxiety and stress and even maybe some staff members, even the team, uh, team leader, uh, panicking, actually. So um, how can we uh, optimize your ability to respond well to one of these emergencies? One thing I often say when I'm teaching at practices is that you need to have all the right emergency equipment, properly labeled, well-organized, all in one spot that can be brought by one or two people to a patient's side, all right? So being hyper-organized, having everything hyper-labeled um, so you know how to use the item, any particular parameters that need to be known for the item. An example would be a bag valve mask. How many dentists, CDAs, hygienists, etc., after taking an emergency course, would remember two years later what type of oxygen flow rate is required for an adult bag valve mask. You're not going to remember it, so the idea then would be, one thing I've seen at dental offices is a lot of label makers. So you get out the label maker and there are clear written instructions on the bag valve mask. Turn main oxygen valve on tank open. 
set flow meter at 15 liters a minute, make sure reservoir bag is filling. That would be a typical labeling of a bag valve mask. A simple face mask, place on patient, oxygen flow meter rate, minimal 10 liters per minute. You're not going to remember these type of things. And an emergency is a setting of chaos when people are not highly trained with lots of experience. And anything like disorganization of the supplies and the equipment can make things go horribly sideways in a hurry. So be ready ahead of time. Hyperorganized. Make sure you own an AED, especially if you're someone listening who does not have a sedation practice where it's virtually required in most jurisdictions, an automatic external defibrillator. And, um, and along with having all the required emergency equipment, airway management devices, medications, etc., you should have a, some type of emergency protocol booklet that is very concise and to the point, um, hopefully laid out in a... Um, in a flow sheet algorithm where it sets out step by step what needs to be done with a patient in a variety of the most common medical emergencies in a dental office. If you go to our website under uh, emergency equipment and supplies, um, you will see actually that we have, um, we have protocol booklets for dental office medical emergencies. We have one for uh, general practices. We have one for adult sedation practices. And we have one for pediatric sedation practices. This is your most up-to-date 2020 best, uh, best uh, management um, protocols for all common medical emergencies. The idea then is that in if you have a serious emergency, one of your staff members' job is to be like a co-pilot on an airliner. You get down the manual, you open it to the appropriate emergency page, and you start reading off step-by-step step what needs to be done so that the team doesn't miss anything that's important. So that's one way to help. Um, be organized. Have a sheet on how to do pediatric and adult CPR in with the AED. Have your resuscitation record, if that's part of your protocols at a, at a sedation practice, on your cart and also a copy in with the AED. And also, whenever possible, plan ahead. So here's an example of what I mean there. Um, it's common that before someone suffers a cardiac arrest, they may have the odd sign and symptom. So the leading cause of cardiac arrest in adults would be an acute coronary syndrome previously uh, called ischemic heart disease or coronary artery disease. This includes things like angina and the various types of heart attacks. So knowing that most patients who are going to have a cardiac arrest during a heart attack will do it in the first 90 minutes. If you ever have a patient who is experiencing chest pain or any types of um, signs and symptoms that are typically related um, and linked to something like a myocardial infarction, uh, that you are ready and know that this is the time they may actually have a lethal rhythm disturbance in their ECG electrics of their heart and that they could go into cardiac arrest. So you should have the AED down close by their operatory. You should have it open and looking at the steps of how to operate it. And you should be reviewing how to do adult or pediatric CPR, depending on the age of your patient. But of course, if it's a heart attack, it would most likely be an adult patient. So what are the steps? Review them again. 
time and time again in the reviewing of sedation tragedies in the dental profession, the teams involved did not meet even the basic life support CPR bar height in their care. They forgot to get their AED. They took over six minutes to get their AED. They did the wrong type of CPR on the patient. They didn't switch the chest compressor every two minutes and fatigue became an issue. They left materials in the mouth that blocked the trachea. Um, the list is long and unfortunately uh, many things, even as basic as determining that the patient needs CPR, which should be done in all of 10 seconds, um, in one tragedy I'm aware of, it took approximately three to four minutes before a CDA actually stated, should we not start CPR? So you need to have a CPR algorithm sheet. It should be in with your AED so that if there's any heads up that something might be about to happen, like a cardiac arrest, you and several members of your team could be reviewing the steps and making sure that it's done correctly. All right. So on a positive note, one of the best places a human being could have a cardiac arrest is actually at a dental office, as long as that office owns an AED. So here's the key things. When I visit my dentist, I am never left alone for more than one or two minutes at a time without a human being coming into the operatory or at least walking by. So it's virtually impossible to have an unwitnessed cardiac arrest. And one of the key factors of surviving a cardiac arrest is how long from the moment you lose your pulse until CPR is started. So if I'm laying there in a hospital bed in cardiac arrest, as a patient on a medical ward without any type of cardiac ECG monitoring going on, if that happens on a night shift and a nurse doesn't come into my room for another 45 minutes, my chances of survival are virtually zero. So one of the biggest factors of whether a patient will survive a cardiac arrest is are they witness to have that arrest and did CPR promptly start at time zero? So one of the biggest advantages of actually having an arrest at a dental office is that nearly all instances would be a witnessed arrest. So if we promptly start CPR and bring defibrillation to the patient, we actually have a very high likelihood of patient survival in the area in the range of about 80 to 90 percent. So at time zero, we have a witnessed arrest. If we promptly start CPR, particularly the chest compressions and do high quality chest compressions, and then after starting the chest compressions, we seek to place the AED on the patient and what the term we use is we're hunting for a shockable rhythm. If we do those steps, then we have a very good likelihood of patient survival, complete survival neurologically intact. So at time zero, we have a very large oxygen load in our blood. So the way I'm going to describe today on how to manage a cardiac arrest in a dental office is a little different than in other settings. Quite often in other settings, the patient actually is spiraling downhill for some time before they actually lose their pulse, like in a hospital. So at the moment they lose their pulse, they may be grossly hypoxic with very low oxygen uh, load in their bloodstream. So the breathing and the opening of the airway and ventilations is much more important in those type of settings. 
Most arrests, when they occur at a dental office, are really what we call the true sudden cardiac arrest. Okay? Patient has no breathing issues, maybe is at the very beginning of a heart attack, suddenly has a lethal arrhythmia like ventricular tachycardia without a pulse or ventricular fibrillation, and then collapses. In these type of cases, at time zero, the patient has a lot of oxygen in their bloodstream. So the need to try to sort out the airway and breathing issue is actually not the top priority. The top priority is moving the blood and getting electricity to the patient as soon as possible. That is, seeing if the rhythm is something that can be defibrillated. And seeing means the AD computer will analyze the rhythm and see if a defibrillation is warranted. The vast majority of adults at time zero when they arrest are in a shockable rhythm. That's partly why AEDs were developed. If we defibrillate a patient at time zero, we have over an 80% chance that we'll have a patient back in a good organized rhythm with decent cardiac output. So in a dental office, the priorities of what to do as far as the CPR and the electricity are different than in some other settings. All right. Priorities would kind of go like this. One, move the blood. High quality, what I often call in courses, kick ass, chest compressions, CPR. Call 911 and get the AED to the patient's side with the concept that the team is hunting for a shockable rhythm. And that's done by applying the AED as per the AED's written audio instructions and allowing the AED to analyze the rhythm to see if it's shockable. If it is a shockable rhythm and you've promptly started CPR, you're likely about to see a very incredible thing, which is a patient awake and talking at to, with you a moment after the shock occurs. Because again, if the AD finds a shockable rhythm, the success rate of that shock when you do it so quickly after the arrest started is quite high. And if you put the patient right back into a normal sinus rhythm and the heart is pumping just as it was a moment before the arrest, you're going to have a patient who's awake, alert and oriented and talking to you. And that actually commonly happens in emergency departments when we quickly defibrillate someone who is arrested right in front of us. So it's an incredibly gratifying experience. So you'll notice that at this point, as far as priorities, I have not mentioned the breathing. So the best breathing you can have a patient do is have them do it themselves. And the best way to have it do it themselves is to promptly move the blood, call 911 and see if the AED will shock the rhythm. If it's shockable, you'll probably have a patient immediately awake and breathing on their own. Now, if you do shock the patient and there are no signs of life after the shock, the protocol for CPR is to immediately resume with chest compressions. And that is what you would do. Um, the other option is the AD says that the rhythm is not shockable at all, and it just says resume CPR. Again, you would resume CPR, and now at some point, I would say this is the time to add the airway and the breathing. So the way CPR is now taught is called CAB, C-A-B, circulation, then airway and breathing. Well, what I'm getting at is after investigating a variety of sedation tragedies where cardiac arrests have occurred, the level of chaos in these moments at the beginning of the time when the patient is found to be in cardiac arrest, they're, they're very, very high. 
And one of the hardest tasks for you and your team to do is to get an oxygen tank to the patient's side, to have a bag valve mask, an oral pharyngeal airway, and to get that patient being ventilated. And this could sort of become the focus if we're not careful. So I want to make sure in this podcast that you understand that the focus is not the breathing in your type of cardiac arrest situation. If this patient wasn't hypoxic before they arrested, then the breathing actually can wait a moment. The highest priority is just get staff on the chest, do proper CPR, 100 to 120 compressions a minute, move the blood. The depth for adults is two to two and a half inches. That's roughly five to six centimeters. It's about the height of the long side of your credit card, actually. And yes, songs like Staying Alive or Another One Bites the Dust have a cadence of 100. Depends on your mood, whether you want to be positive or negative about the situation. You pick which song you want to use. And, um, and you move the blood. When you've seen if the rhythm is shockable and there's enough staff and the airway and breathing and bag valve mask and all that, the oxygen tank has made it to the patient, then you can consider now working your way into regular CPR where you do 30 compressions and then give two breaths. But initially, the breathing is not the most important issue if you have a true sudden cardiac arrest that was not preceded by hypoxia. So other issues I just want to talk about here then are we have seen on more than one occasion uh, when reviewing uh, 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 tragedies at dental offices that there has been sort of a, a moment of time where the team and particularly the dentist or team leader are in a state of denial and they're not acting. So we have a case in British Columbia where again, probably we estimate approximately three minutes went by. This was a case I was an expert witness in. Approximately three minutes went by before the decision to start CPR was made when there were multiple obvious signs that the patient was not alive, that they had no pulse. This included moving the oxygen sat probe around and it also included cycling the blood pressure. So one thing that I have to say is we teach the entire sedation team to be ready to act if things seem to go into a state of frozen animation or whatever you want to call it. So that is someone has to yell out if within 10 seconds you cannot determine for sure by looking for signs of life and a pulse that the patient's alive, you have to yell out that we have to start CPR now. Call 911 and get the AD. And again, start with compressions. Don't even worry about where's the oxygen tank, where's the bag valve mask, how are we going to get a number of staff together so that we can ventilate them, say, with two-person bag valve mask technique. Just do those other steps. Move the blood, chest compressions. Make sure 911 is being called. Again, we have an instance where uh, in a case in North America, approximately 16 minutes went by before 911 was called. All right. So get help coming. Get your AED to the patient. Get the AED on and listen to that voice and follow the prompts. Quite likely, it's going to be shockable. You're going to have a patient awake again talking with you. And really, you're going to go home knowing that you helped save someone's life. If by chance the patient does not respond to a shock or a shock is not advised, now you're going to resume CPR with compressions again and add the airway and breathing. 
when you can, okay? So if the lead dentist seems to be in a state of denial and not moving, you as team members have to yell out what you think the situation is and you have to yell out, we must get on the chest. It's time that members of the dental profession work hard to make sure that minimally the basic life support CPR bar height is being met in these type of dire emergency situations. That's all I'm saying. So again, it's a good place to drop dead. I'd rather actually have a cardiac arrest myself at a dental office if they own an AED and follow those steps than up on a medical surgical ward in a bed unmonitored on a night shift in any hospital my chances of survival would be significantly higher at your dental practice. A couple other things. As far as advanced cardiac life support and all of the drugs we push and the airway tubes we place in tracheas and the type of IV lines and vascular access we go for, most of that has not been shown to have any high level of evidence to increase survival to discharge. You as basic life support providers have everything that has strong scientific evidence to change survival to discharge out of a hospital for someone who suffers a cardiac arrest. And that is high quality CPR, promptly started, rotating the chest compressor every two minutes, doing CPR for adults, which is what this talk is really covering, in a 30 compression to two breath ratio, adding the AD as soon as possible, seeing if you have a shockable rhythm. The two items that have the highest level of evidence to change survival in cardiac arrest you have, which is your staff knowing how to do CPR and a defibrillator. And in most cases in dental practices, that's an automatic external defibrillator. All right. So there you go. How to manage a cardiac arrest at your dental practice. So one last thing, um, I just wanted to mention quickly about uh, where should we be doing CPR. You have to be doing CPR on a hard surface and a flat surface. Really, we don't have evidence as to whether having a patient in a uh, flat position in a dental chair with the legs elevated, that's known as a Trendelenburg position, is uh is a good thing. So um, there is some evidence that there could be harm with this position in that it creates increased venous pooling in the uh, brain region. So optimally, as soon as possible in any cardiac arrest, the patient has to be moved to the floor and CPR has to be done on a hard surface. Again, other than a defibrillator, the quality of CPR making sure that new people are on the chest every two minutes, making sure that they're doing the proper depth and speed of compressions, making sure they're allowing for full chest recoil and that they're not hyperventilating the patient. These type of things are actually have stronger levels of evidence than most of what we do during a cardiac arrest. So I think it's reasonable in the, in the beginning moments when, when, when anxiety and stress is extremely high that you start CPR in the dental chair. Make sure you put the chair into the flattest possible position. Um, and uh, most chairs are not bolted to the ground or a lot are not. So be ready that as you do compressions, you're going to possibly tip the chair slightly. So 
to make sure that the energy that you're putting into the patient goes into the patient, there are recommendations for placing a stool under the head area of the chair so that the upper chair doesn't spring down with each compression, losing energy instead of it going into the patient's chest. So initially start CPR in the chair. If you think that there's not enough staff and the chaos level is too high to move to the patient to the floor. But again, if after a minute or two of resuscitation, you do not have a patient back alive with you, you really have to think about getting that patient down onto the floor. One other little topic I'm going to throw in today is the use of analgesics during heart attacks and also the use of oxygen during heart attacks. There's a fair bit of misinformation being taught at dental conferences across North America. One, there are uh, dental professionals in this area of teaching that are teaching to use nitrous oxide to treat chest pain. Now, there is no evidence that pain itself has ever been linked to increased morbidity, mortality during a myocardial infarction. And the issue with using nitrous oxide is not really the nitrous oxide itself, it's more the percentage of oxygen that the patient's going to get if they're in cardiac arrest um, or if they're having a heart attack. In a cardiac arrest, um, we do deliver 100% oxygen when we do move to doing the airway and breathing component. We hook them up to 100% oxygen. During a heart attack, there's actually evidence that high, high concentrations of oxygen leading to a hyper-oxygenated uh, blood um, level uh, can actually be harmful to patient outcome. So there is no evidence that hyperoxygenation of the bloodstream is beneficial, yet there is some evidence of potential harm. So ACLS guidelines uh, actually indicate to maintain O2 sats between 94 and 98%, and there is a lot of discussion in literature about really uh, possible harmful effects of hyperoxygenation of the bloodstream. So what I tend to say to people is, that if they have a normal oxygen saturation without any uh, compromise uh, as far as shortness of breath, just put them on nasal prongs at say two liters a minute. That's going to give a very small amount of supplemental oxygen without leading to a hyperoxemic blood level of oxygen where we have partial pressures of oxygen, say like 400 millimeters of mercury. It's these very high oxygen levels where there is some evidence that there's potential harm to patient outcome. So since most nitrous oxide delivered to adults having severe chest pain would probably be at least a 50-50 mixture, 50% oxygen delivery ongoing when someone's having possibly chest pain or other symptoms related to a heart attack is most likely not beneficial and possibly harmful and goes against actual ACLS guidelines. So one other little thing in people having chest pain, what really helps um, if they're actually having a heart attack, the one item at your practice to help is the aspirin. Two baby aspirin or one adult aspirin chewed, swallowed with a small drink of water to make sure that you're not leaving a large dose of the aspirin in the teeth. That um, significantly decreases morbidity and mortality during a heart attack. There has never been any evidence that analgesia changes outcome and there is no support for the use of oxygen either in a heart attack 
or nitroglycerin actually if they're actually having a heart attack. Now that you don't know at an office. So um, there is the potential for some cautious use of nitroglycerin during chest pain at a dental office. Again, you need a proper up-to-date protocol booklet, an ACLS algorithm. And again, our algorithm documents within the um, the emergency protocol booklets that we sell at dentaled.com do have current best practice. And it does discuss the use of nitrates in chest pain and uh, making sure that the blood pressure is adequate, making sure that uh, they don't have any medication contraindications to be given nitro spray. And it also discusses low flow oxygen and avoiding hyperoxemia. So uh, one last little thing that I just wanted to add in. We love feedback. Feel free to email us at info at dentaled.com. If you have any comments on any of the podcasts, any information, if you noticed any mistakes, if you agree or disagree with things, please feel free to get a hold of us. Um, and one of the easiest ways is to send me an email at info at dentaled.com. So until next time, um, have a good day. Um, I'm driving back to British Columbia tomorrow, a two-day drive, just over 2,000 kilometers with my wife, and uh, wish us luck. Thanks, bye.